The PKD Black Box is a proud member of the Comics Podcast Network. This is the PKD Black Box, episode 29. Welcome back to the PKD Black Box. I'm your host, Sean Pryor, a.k.a. Stan Leroy, a.k.a. Barack O'Comics. This week's episode, we have a conversation with Stephen Lindsay, creator of Jesus Hate Zombies. We talk about his road down the path of independent comics creation. We talk about the highs and lows. We talk about his controversy with Jesus Hate Zombies being removed from Apple, the Comixology app, that is, on iTunes. We also talk about some future projects that he has in store as well. Very good conversation. I hope you enjoy it. Afterwards, we also have a talk with Mark Johnson. He is also the host of the VS for Vertigo podcast. And Mark and I have a nice conversation about Transformers. Uh, basically, what started off as a conversation between Beast Wars and Beast Machines spawned off into this massive Transformers talk about everything that we loved about Transformers uh, back in the day. So reminisce with us a bit. And props to Vin DeCola. He did the original score uh, musical score for Transformers, the animated movie, and we threw some snippets in there for the peeps. Hope that you enjoy them as well. So, shout out to Mr. Decola. But before we get to the meat of the program, there are a couple of things I want to talk with you about. Artist creator Sean Cosley of the webcomic hit Panda Force, which can be found at pandaforcecomic.com, is currently doing his Panda Force Summer Shorts, where he collaborates with other artists and writers as they present. A variety of Panda Force shorts. Now, if you don't know what Panda Force is, imagine Powerpuff Girls meets Power Rangers meets robotic animals and just mad craziness, destruction, bright colors, just vivid. It's it's a fantastic webcomic. I enjoy it a lot. And the summer shorts just started um, last week. Um, actually, two weeks ago. I apologize. Two weeks ago. And the current Panda Force summer short is called Activation, which is a Panda Force prequel, which is a story written by Michael Farah art by Mark Penman, and colors and letters by creator-artist Sean Cosley. Um, later on during the Panda Force Summer Shorts, be on the lookout for a Panda Force comic called Remember the Crime, uh, written by yours truly, uh, with art by Julian Lytle, and colors and letters by Sean Cosley. I think it's a really cool concept that uh, Mr. Cosley, or just Sean, uh, decided to collab with a bunch of people to put out these shorts for the summer for his comic Panda Force. I really think that you'll dig them. I dig them, and I hope you do too. And you can check those out at pandaforcecomic.com. So don't miss out on that. We actually will be interviewing Sean Cosley and uh, Julian Lytle in the near future. And Julian's been on the show before, but I got to bring both Julian and Sean to the table so we can talk about the Panda Force Summer Shorts and other stuff. So hope you dig, so peep that. Also, if you don't mind, If you have a moment, if you can go to iTunes and give us uh, the PKD Black Box and iTunes review, we would really appreciate it. Um, I would appreciate it dearly. It would mean a lot to me. And if you have any compliments or suggestions or things you like you don't like on the show, you can always send us an email at blackbox, that's all one word, blackbox at pkdmedia.com. If you send us an email, we'll do our best to reply. We may even reply to the email on the show. So any feedback that you could give is appreciated, whether it be an iTunes review or an email that you send to the show. And thank you also. We have um, also want to say thank you to those that have been listening to our uh, 
brother podcast, Tales from the Attic, hosted by one of, one of our co-hosts on the Black Box, Donnie Salvo. It's really been getting a lot of heat and a lot of positive buzz lately, and the downloads just keep coming down. So I want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart for enjoying what I like to call MST3K meets comic books, and Donnie is very thankful for that as well. So I wanted to pass that along to you as well. And now, on with the show. On the phone right now is the creator of uh, Jesus Hates Zombies. He's the one and only Stephen Lindsay. Uh, Stephen, how you doing, sir? I'm terrific, thank you. Now, I had the, I had the privilege of meeting uh, Stephen this year at the Pittsburgh Comic-Con thanks to the uh, Nerdcast. The Nerdcast um, worked out a deal where a bunch of uh, fellow creators were able to stay at the Comfort Inn, and I had an opportunity to hang out with Stephen there, had an opportunity to see him work his magic at the Nerdcast booth selling Jesus Hate Zombies books. And we're going to talk about your selling prowess because, I've, I, man, I haven't seen a dude push material like you have at a con. If a con is slow, that doesn't matter to Stephen. He can push he, he can push a book and we go talk about that later. My first question to you is with all these zombies zombie books out nowadays, what was the inspiration for you to come out with uh, Jesus Hates Zombies? Well, let's see. I started off doing a straight zombie drama that I was writing and this was when I was just starting to get back into comics. I fell out of comics for a long time. Didn't really know what was out there. So when I started writing this and started uh kind of looking into what kind of stuff was out there, I found The Walking Dead. And as soon as I found that, I realized that I couldn't do a better straight zombie survival drama than that. I mean, that book is like gold standard for me, like it doesn't get any better. So I said, okay, I better switch things up here. And I've always felt like I had kind of a knack for writing comedy, like the timing and, and you know, just how situational comedy kind of works together. So I was like, all right, I don't see anything out there that takes zombies and tries to make it amusing, you know, while still hold true to that, that spirit of why everybody loves zombie stuff. So I figured I wanted to try something like that. Uh, and I also love, like, 50s-style B-movies, so I knew I wanted to do a B-movie-style zombie comic, but I knew it had to have something to it, a certain hook, that would actually draw people in and let them know what they were getting into. Because the last thing I would want to do is have people, hardcore horror fans, think they're going to be picking up this gore book, and then they'd be like, what the hell is this crap? So... <laughs> The title was really the first thing that popped into my head, and it made me chuckle. If I could make myself chuckle, then I think I might be onto something. But I was worried it might be like a one-note joke. Yeah. I was like, all right, I think this is funny, but I don't know if it's actually a full, even a full book funny. So I figured, all right, I'll just start to write it. And the more I wrote it, the more I started to dig Jesus as a character, you know, like just as a blue-collar guy, just treating him kind of as if you or I were in that situation, but with a tremendous amount of pressure on us because of who we are. And so I figured if I took that approach with him, then I could sustain it more than just this joke of, oh, Jesus is here and fighting zombies. So that really pushed me to try and make it a better book than the premise is, if that makes any sense. No, it, it makes a lot of sense because it could have just come off. I remember when I first heard, heard the title, Jesus Hates Zombies, the first thing I thought of was um, Family Guy. And how, mm -hmm. and how Jesus is portrayed as, as a very silly character um, on the show. So I was like, so I was, that was the first thing that popped in my head. But when you look at Jesus Hates Zombies, it, it, yes, there are comical B, you know, B movie, comical B movie um, items and, and uh, you know, types of storytelling. But it's not, 
it's not a like a one trick pony, like you said. It's not a one trick pony. Whereas the Family Guy Jesus is a one trick pony. Absolutely. So it serves to the story, and, and you know, and, and it helps it move along. So, you know, we know of a lot of people that might like take something as religious as many people, you know, like for the religious types that are like real. What's the word I'm looking for? Um, what's the word I'm looking for? I'm, I'm at a loss of words right now. Those those people that kind of take it a little too seriously. Let's just put it mm-hmm. like that. The people that, kinda, <laughs> that, that that take it a little bit too uh, seriously. When you were doing this book, were you like concerned about like that at all? Or are you just like, you know what? This is what I want to do. Screw it. I'm just going to do it. I would have been concerned, I think, if I was going for shock value. If I was trying to just... If I was trying to offend for the sake of offending to get attention, then then you're bound to piss people off because that's all you're trying to do. Mm-hmm. I never went into this book with the intention of being mean-spirited. You know, I never went into this book to, to point a finger and be like, you're religious and that's stupid. Because, what you know, what, what purpose would that serve? That's not storytelling. That's just being antagonistic. And that was something that consciously I knew I never wanted to do. I always suspected it would piss some people off, but I knew that the people that pissed off would be the people who never looked past the cover. You know, anybody who took the time to actually read it would be like, hmm, I guess I don't have anything to be pissed off about. So for me, that, would, that was a big thing of, you know, I wasn't actively trying to piss off people. I knew if I did, then if I had a chance to get into any type of dialogue with them, if I could convince them to actually read it, then I, I'm confident that I could sway them. Well, I know that you can definitely, you definitely have the confidence to sway people to buy the book, as evident <laughs> as evident uh, by my time uh, watching you down the way at the uh, Pittsburgh Comic Con. Um, the Pittsburgh Comic Con, as I said in previous ep- in a previous episode or two, um, traffic was kind of slow. It wasn't as busy as it normally could be, and that could be a, due to a number of things. But even though the show was slow, Stephen was moving books left and right. I'm I'm serious. Every like there were so many people complaining that they weren't mo- you know they weren't either selling sketches or moving books. And I just I just saw Steven standing up the whole time, just talking to people. You know, they walk away with a big smile on their face. Another book sold. Another book sold. Another book sold. I'm like, <laughs> how does this dude do it? I mean, like, you know, look, I got a little bit of charisma. I, you know, I stand behind the books we put out. You know, because I, I I get hyped about them and I love them enough to you know try to pass them along to the next person. So, how are you able to sell this book to somebody? Well, the biggest thing I think for me is. One of the biggest things for me is the fact that I lucked into a really catchy title that piques people's curiosity. So when I have my banner up and in huge letters it says Jesus Hates Zombies, 9 out of 10 people who walk by at least say the name and chuckle if they don't stop at the table. So that's huge. And then when they come to the table, look, I go into, every, I go into this business as I'm really privileged. I mean, you know, you know from personal experience we work our asses off to do this. Yes. You know, and it, it's... It's 24-7 whether we've got a full-time job or not. You know, you're, you have to constantly be working and promoting to have any shot at doing this. But we're also really, really privileged. I mean, if somebody's going to drop down their hard-earned money to read some shit that I write, I'm, I'm a lucky guy. Mm-hmm. I, I find that to be, I mean, that still blows my mind. I've been selling this book for three years now, and it still completely blows my mind that anybody wants to buy what I've written. So anybody who's going to take the time to come up to my table is going to get my time. Right. I'm not going to try and sell them. You know, I'm not, I'm not going, hey, you need this. You know, you want this. You should read this. I, I talk to them about the con. I talk to them about, you know, what it is they've got. You know, like if they scored a cool sketch, I want to see it. I want them to tell me about it. I'm as big a fan as anybody that comes up to the table. So, you know, I love to hear that stuff. And, it, and it's just over the course of conversation with people, 
that they, they kind of then take the time to listen if they ask me about the book. You know, if they're like, oh, okay, so what is this? Or if I get the usual, you know, wasn't Jesus the, the original zombie or you know, any of those things, I, I've already developed a rapport with people. So, you know, it's almost like friends buying stuff to support you as opposed to strangers that you're pushing something on. That's the way I look at it. So my big thing is I never try to sell. I never try to be that salesman guy, you know, look over here, you know, newest, best, deals, all that kind of stuff. I just take the time to talk to people. And, and so far, for me, that seemed to work. And it really makes everything fun for me because I like to talk to people. experiences and dealing you know and dealing with you and talking with you you're just a good person in, in general too and i think that helps you know oh thank you no no i'm for real like i said you, people who know me know i don't bullshit about stuff like that if i think somebody you know, is legit i'll say it because if they're not i won't talk to them <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, you know I, I i can't really i can't deal with shady people man because you know we have enough in life that we deal with to make life stressful and the one thing that we love doing like you know making comics why should you have to constantly deal and stress over people like that or deal with people right. like that when you don't have to you shouldn't have to so i you know i think you know your personality and your just overall genuineness really helps you sell books in my opinion one thing i noticed and please correct me if i'm wrong because sometimes the brother's vision plays with them um the uh, size of the size of the books uh, for uh, for jesus hates zombies those are digest size right Right. Okay. okay. See, because like I've noticed, what I've been starting to notice more with a lot of um, with a lot of books and how, as far as formats and whatnot, they're normally either trade sized length uh, length of story. They're trade wise, but they're also I'm starting to see more digest sized books. Do you think that the digest size it also helps you um, sell sell the book? Probably. I mean, it allows us to put a price point that you know people feel like they're they're going to get something for their money. You know, as opposed to, you know, if if I was putting out floppies to make it feasible, they'd have to be like four bucks, and four bucks for at most like thirty-two pages can kind of feel like shit. There's a lot of money for for this little, you know, flimsy feeling thing. Whereas the digest size, I can, for a good price, throw in sixty-four pages of a book, and hopefully have people feel like you know they're actually getting some meat on the bones with it. Um, and, you know, just as a business person, digest size is cheaper. It's cheaper to produce, and you still get, you know, that, that comic book feel as opposed to losing that. When, once you lose the feel of it being a comic, then you're in trouble. But with the digest size, it still has that feel. So I think, you know, I was a little reluctant at first. It wasn't my idea to switch. It was actually Alternative Comics' idea to switch to the digest size. And, you know, they were going purely economical, as far as, you know, what, what they could afford to do. And I was like, oh, man, this book's going to be little and it's going to be weird. And then I got it, totally fell in love with the size and the format. Well, the one thing I noticed with you having digest-sized comics, you're able to have a slew or multitude of comics on, you know, a small table. Mm -hmm. And you're able to, you know, like I said, people are able to view as many of the, as many of the books as you carry, whereas someone that may have, like, a standard-sized standard trade like me, um, you know, because I, I sell my books a little bit differently. I mean, they're up for display, but I may not be able to have like four four titles on one table. I might have to spread it out a little bit depending on the size of the table. The, the compact book, 
um, is definitely um, a sellable quality. So, no, I, I think that's good. And, you like, once again, you were moving them. So, hey, I can't hate on you, player. <laughs> I cannot hate on you. <laughs> now, also, not only is there Jesus Hates Zombies, but there's also Jesus Hates Zombies featuring Lincoln Hates Werewolves. Yes. Okay, now, <laughs> now, how did this idea come about? As a joke, <laughs> when the first anthology, anthology, the Jesus Hates Zombies, those Slackjaw Blues, came out, the, the most common question I got after it wasn't Jesus the First Zombie was, or it wasn't even a question, it was a, it was a statement. Everybody had an idea of historical figure hates something. Mm-hmm. You know, everybody was telling me, you know, Gandhi hates Frankenstein, things like that. And uh, I got worried that, oh, man, this first book I'm putting out is going to pigeonhole me. And then I was like, well, really, is that a horrible problem to have? I mean, if people know my book enough to want to suggest things to me, I should be grateful. So then I started taking it in, and then, just as a joke on a blog, I was like, all right, I'm announcing my next book. It's Abraham Lincoln Hates Werewolves, just as a joke. Well, as soon as I typed it, I was like, you know what? I kind of dig that, because I like werewolves. And Lincoln is is as interesting a character to me uh, well, first of all, he's incredibly interesting as a historical figure. And then I thought, as a character, he would be a lot of fun to play with. So I was like, okay, maybe instead of pigeonholing myself into just doing these, you know, so-and-so hate something books, what if I tried to pair them? And then I started thinking, like, Lethal Weapon style, like, I could pair these guys up like my Riggs and Murtaugh. And that could be a lot of fun because I could have Jesus, who's my, you know, foul mouth kind of, blue-collar guy, and I can have Lincoln, who would be a hell of a straight man. And if I can figure a way to play these two off of each other and make it work in a story, that could be a lot of fun. And so that's where that whole thing came about. And then I decided just, I'm a big fan of titles that are so long, they're ridiculous. So, you know, like, the, the series is Jesus Hates Zombies featuring Lincoln Hates Werewolves in Yay Though I Walk. So, I mean, that's absurd title. I mean, it's so long, it's ridiculous. Well, but for me, that's a lot of fun. It might come off as absurd, but that goes straight back to your uh, B-movie 1950-style type film. Because you used exactly. to have titles like that back then. Yep. <laughs> and and it makes it seem like... It almost makes it feel like the Lincoln Hates Werewolves property was there before, and I decided, you know, I'm going to put these two things together, when, when really there is no separate Lincoln Hates Werewolves. It's just part of the whole Jesus Hates Zombies book. It's the most quiet backdoor pilot that you know that anybody's <laughs> ever known. Now, the one thing I find funny is is that because there have been some other people that have also tried to use Abraham Lincoln as well, like Abraham Lincoln, time traveler, and oh, I can't remember the name of the actual uh, company that's doing it, but they have like a series of Abraham Lincoln books. But you know, Abraham Lincoln is a very interesting character. Every time I see Abraham Lincoln, for some reason, I think about Peter Fonda. Um, because if memory serves me right, I want to say, either, was it Peter Fonda or Henry Fonda that played Abraham Lincoln in, in like an old school black and white movie about Abraham Lincoln? So like every time I see, I see like <laughs> Jesus hates zombies featuring Lincoln hates werewolves. I see one of the Fondas just like whooping some werewolf ass, and <laughs> it just ma- it makes me chuckle. For you, what is your writing process? Because every every different person I've talked to that creates comic books or writes comics 
has their own style or own method of writing. And even those methods can change with every book. Um, sure. For you, what is your method? Well, with Jesus Hate Zombies, because I always want to keep a sense of fun, you know, in, in every single page, I, d- I don't outline it, and I, I don't plan that far ahead. Like, I'll think about it, but I don't write anything down until I actually stand there at the computer and start typing away at the script. And I stand when I write. That's, like, one of my processes. Because I, I'm a fidgety bastard, so I move around a lot, and if I have to sit to do my writing, then I kind of go stir-crazy. So I have my laptop set up uh, about chest height on a like a desk, and I actually stand and write. So like yeah, like I said, with Jesus Hate Zombies, there's no planning ahead. I like it to be really organic. I just let the story I let the story kind of tell me where it wants to go. I have milestones I know I want to hit, but on the way there, I, I kind of I don't know. I call it listening to my characters. I kind of listen to my characters and they tell me what they want to do. With a book like The Devil's Trail, which is my supernatural western because that's a much more serious book, um, I wanted to be much more detail-oriented, and so I actually outlined that out before I started to write it, um, which is something I don't usually do. But I follow the outline loosely, because I still need that spontaneity and that, that listening to my characters thing for me when, you know, when I'm writing. Like, I know there's people that are so structured, their outlines could be considered scripts, and, you know, I'm, I just... I don't know, I couldn't do that. I would feel locked in a cage as a writer. Now, in saying that, when you put a script together, how do you present that to an artist? It's just like, I, I've written this, and here you go. Or it, do, does the artist have like a strict list of guidelines that, that they have to follow? Or what is that process? Well, I'm, I'm, pretty, I'm a pretty good communicator, and I usually send scripts in like four or five-page chunks. Um, so it's, you know, so for me, so it's easier for the artist to digest and so I tell them you know what I'm doing as I'm doing it instead of them waiting on me to finish a full you know 22 32 64 whatever page script and then passing it over and what I tell you know every artist I work with like right from the beginning I I know the words but they're the visual storyteller and comics is such a visual medium that there that there has to be that trust between me and them that that I show to them that I say okay you're the visual guy. If you think, you know, this page that I have set up as seven panels would work better as five and we can ditch two of them, just do it because I trust you. And I know that, that you're going to know how to make that page flow. And because I letter all my own work, then once I start getting pages in and I start lettering, that's my editorial process. That's when I go through my writing and say, okay, you know, too much dialogue here. Um, ooh, I'm really inspired by the, the acting that the artist has done with, with this character in this panel, so I'm going to expand what they're doing a little bit in their dialogue here, that kind of stuff. We have a comic on our, on our website called XO1, The Rock Solid Steel Bots, and what, ha- what happened when we first started um, working on it, when I gave uh, the artist, um, Daniel J. Logan, when I gave him like the first uh, 16 or 17 pages worth of script, and he gave me back the pages. You know, once again, he is the storyteller as well. So changed some things up here and there, which was cool, and it actually helped serve the story better. But at the same time, it also made me look at my script and say, well, did I really need this piece of dialogue here? Did I really need this there? So I, in turn, changed up some dialogue and changed up the script a, script a bit to help with the art flow because the, mm-hmm. art, the art was fine as is. It told the story because to, to me, if a writer can send an artist a script 
and the artist can deliver all the pages and you can look at it from beginning to end, even without words, be able to know what the story is about, that artist has done a hell of a job. Absolutely. So when I saw that, I'm like, well, I can change a lot of this dialogue here. And, and then at the same time, this also helps me once again. Now, granted, sometimes I'm real and over-tentive, so sometimes I'll constantly look over a script again and again and again and again and again, <laughs> even after the artist is finished. Because I'll be looking at my writing, I'm like, does this dialogue sound forced? Do, does, does, do people really say that? You know, then I'll sit there and talk to myself over and over <laughs> again. And, and my wife will look at me like, what is wrong with you? And I'm like, you know, it's just this one of those things. But it actually helps me tell a better story when it's all said and done. You've been writing comic books for a little while, haven't you? Say about how many years have you been writing books? Almost four. Your, your early work, you probably worked with um, either in, an anth- in anthology books or uh, various other matters, right? Uh, <laughs> the first Jesus Hate Zombies anthology was actually the first thing I did. Really? Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome, man. <laughs> way, way to step off on a good foot. But I came from filmmaking to comics, so you know, script writing and, and focus on dialogue and character was something that you know I, I've been... Uh, engrossed in for years because I was doing independent films where I was writing, producing, directing, editing. And so, you know, being completely immersed in story helped me tremendously when I, when I decided that I was totally burnt out on independent filmmaking and just, you know, couldn't do the things I wanted to do because of the limitations of the medium. So when I switched over, you know, I, I was able to take everything I had learned from several years of independent filmmaking and fighting in those trenches and translate it to comics. So I kind of cut my teeth before I even started in a way. As far as on the indie film tip, um, who were some of your inspirations or favorite storytellers that inspired you to get into film? Ooh. <laughs> um, I'm a huge Spielberg fan. I, I kind of like almost to the point where I'm a Spielberg apologist, like the guy can do no wrong for me. Um, Because I'm a big believer in, you know, the power of storytelling, but also the escapism of storytelling. Like, I love both facets. You know, there's people who are like, oh, that's just popcorn shit. And then there's people who are like, oh, God, you film geeks, and, you know, you need to try and find the meaning of life in a fucking movie. Um, I think both can be served. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I love, like... Akira Kurosawa, you know, that, that dude was amazing. I mean, he was able to, to mix genres like nobody's business. He could have you laughing and crying within a 30-second span in a film. So, you know, p- people like that really kind of instilled different loves of storytelling in me that, you know, I think films have a very unique way of portraying. And so I always wanted to try and do that. And once I was doing it, I realized that, you know, yes, my love of storytelling is there, but maybe not in this medium. Maybe I should just enjoy films <laughs> instead of, you know, getting so involved in it that it kind of ruins it. Well, yeah, well, that that too, but also at the same time, it could also depend on who you're working with as well. Because sometimes if you don't have or you can't find people as passionate or, I don't want to say understanding, but if they don't, un- but if they don't understand what you're really trying to get across and don't have that same passion as you do, what the end result, may be something that you didn't want to see at all. Yep. And Absolutely. and then that can hurt and that can hurt you because I remember years ago like in the late 90s early 2000s um when I was trying to do like the indie film too, indie film thing too, but I was just using like 
um, digital equipment. Now I'm talking about early digital, like a Canon Optura PI. <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, you know, be- be- before the good stuff started coming out over the past like five or six years. You yeah. Know? But like an, a Canon Optura PI and a uh, Mac Cube. See, who remembers the Mac G4 Cube? Because I had one. So uh, <laughs> yeah, and, and and like a and like a copy of uh, Final and a copy of Final. Not final. Is it Final Cut? Yeah, I think Final Cut. Yeah, Final Cut. So I, that's, I had Final Cut. I had a Canon GL2, and I had a Mac G4. So, so I, I feel you. See, but see, you had the Canon GL though. See, that's yeah. the camera I wanted. I wanted that GL. <laughs> see, <laughs> so I was like, yeah, I can make movies with this GL. This is gonna be hot, and I couldn't afford it. I was like, well. Let me get this up to a PI, and I bought like a crap load of lenses for it, and I had like all this equipment for it, and every single project I tried to do always fell apart because I couldn't find people dedicated to it. Absolutely. They would be excited the first day. They would be excited when they got the script, and you tell them, okay, we're going to shoot this in three weeks, and I wouldn't even ask for a lot of their time. I'm like, I need two hours here, three hours here, four hours here, five hours there, and you could get them the first two times, and then the third time they were just bored. Yep. So then I'm like, is there a problem with my story, or is there a problem with I'm not working with people that are as excited about this as I am? So mm-hmm. I know, I, trust me, I know how you feel on that. I, <laughs> I, I, I really do. If it was up to me and I had the money, I would make John Woo movies every day. But, <laughs> <laughs> but, but no, okay, my bad. Let me Let me get us back on track. As far as comics go, are there any inspirations on the comic side that uh, that have helped you uh, get to where you are right now? Um, ooh, let's see. Well, you know, as a writer, Robert Kirkman, um, you know, that guy just knows storytelling. Like I said, Walking Dead is is perfect. Um, Invincible actually was able to to take you know capes and tights and make it fresh for me and new and, and interesting and exciting. Brian K. Vaughn, you know, Why the Last Man is epic and amazing. Um, Eric Powell, that I love his his absurdist comedy and, you know, his mainstream indie sensibility, if that makes any sense. Like mm-hmm. the dude the goon is an indie comic that that mainstream crowd can can absolutely love. Um, because it's just so damn good. Let me think, let me think. Steve Niles as a writer and as a person, dude was super cool to me. Um, I've met him a couple times, and, and you know he's always been super encouraging and, and really, really nice. And one of the good people in this industry that made me, you know, think, oh, this is awesome. Um, Brian Glass, who writes Mice Templar, mm-hmm. maybe one of the nicest people on the planet. You know, is a gentleman and an absolutely genius writer, and has really encouraged me from way, way early on. Um, you know he he's he's been there to offer me advice. He's you know been encouraging. He's just been you know one of the, another one of those people like Steve Niles who makes you go you know this this is a, this is a pretty cool business. Uh, pretty much anybody that'll that takes the time to to follow this this really really difficult passion where there's so much invested in it and, and they follow through with it. You know that inspires me. I'm not like. I'm a competitive guy, but for some reason, when it comes to comics, I'm not. I have this feeling like there's room on the shelf for all of us. Right. You know what I mean? So anybody that's that's doing what you and I are doing and putting into it what you and I are putting into it, you know, then they inspire me. I had an opportunity to meet um, Brian Glass at the uh, Comic Geek Speak Super Show back in March. 
he was like at a table right across from me. So I got a, I got a chance to meet him like right before the show was ending on 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 a Sunday. You know, nice guy. He handed me, a, you know, he gave me a couple issues of uh, Mice Templar, which I, which I really dug. And at first, I didn't think I was going to dig it because in my mind, I was already thinking, "Oh, this is just Mouse Guard," and because mm-hmm. you know, I, I love Mouse Guard. No, this won't hit. And I and I really enjoyed Templar. I really did. And I'm like, okay, well, now that I've read this, I can see that Templar is different from Mouse Guard. So it's two different things. I'm good. And, you know, <laughs> right, right. And this is a guy that he gets a Harvey Award. And he's been in the industry for a long time. Yeah. <laughs> a very long time. Because, like, didn't he get, like, Best New Writer or something like that? Um, as far as the he was, like, go? Oh. Breakthrough Talent, I think. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Breakthrough Talent. <laughs> Man's he been... said he's oh, go ahead. 19 years or something, he said. Yeah. It's, which is really funny, you know. <laughs> it's like, it, but it's really telling about this industry. Mm-hmm. You know, he's, he's been grinding for 19 years because of his love of it. And, you know, to see somebody like that get recognized with that Harvey was really, really big. I, I was, you know, so thrilled. And not only that, but he's also, um, I guess, writing a, a Thor book for Marvel, yeah. too. So, you know, hey, props to him. I mean, it's definitely paid off. I mean, he's, he's kept at it. He joked he joked with me. He was like, I survived the 90s. And, yeah. <laughs> and, he, and, like, he showed us a bunch of the books he, he did in the 90s, and he started opening it up and looking, you know, and showing us and just making jokes. He's like, see, I survived all of this and this. <laughs> and I'm like, wow. Um, <laughs> um, but, no, I, no, props to him for that. You said you had stepped away from comics for a period of time before hopping back in and then deciding to do um, Jesus Hates Zombies. When was the period of time that you stepped away from comics, Why and what was your reason reasons as to why? I think I just got, you know, into to other things. I don't know, like, I, I stopped having an interest, I guess. Like, I was, a, I was a, growing up, I was a huge Daredevil fan. Like, Daredevil was the end-all, be-all character for me. And, and for some reason... Like, I, don't, I can't even look back and think, when did I get out of comics? Like, I kind of just drifted out of it. And, you know, as a teenager, didn't know what I, you know, didn't know what the hell I liked. I was a teenager. You know, I, I didn't know what I liked. I didn't have that passion. Like, it seems to me now, like, kids focus on stuff so much more than, than when I was young. Yeah. You know, they, they really gravitate to things. And seeing it in my own kids, it's really interesting. Like, my son's huge into Halo right now. and He wants everything having to do with Halo. And... Like I, I'm, other than Star Wars, I never really had that, that you know, intense focus on something that that I think it would last. So you know, I just kind of meandered for a while, and and you know, comics kind of seemed like a, a kid thing. And even when I started to get back into it, it seemed like a kid thing. And I was like, well, that's why I should really see what else is out there. Yeah. And you know, that's when I discovered things like Why the Last Man and The Walking Dead, and learned that that comics kind of grew up just like I did. Oh, oh yeah. And, and, you know, holy shit, there's some really interesting and innovative and fresh storytelling going on in this medium. And uh, that got me really excited. Yeah. I, what I've noticed is the world of comics, not completely with the big two, but it kind of reminds, it kind of, it, there's a similarity, similarity to that in professional wrestling coming up in the 80s. And hear me out on this. Now, when... When I was a kid in the 80s, I watched wrestling every Saturday and Sunday, whether it be the WWF, the AWA, NWA, WCW. I watched all that stuff. 
because, mm-hmm. you know, as a kid, I thought that was awesome. And then, you know, WWF became big. Um, AWA went away and all that stuff. And then as I grew up, I, as I grew up, it kind of grew up and well, it kind of grew up a little bit. And then <laughs> in, and then in the 90s, it basically became well, when WW, uh, when the WWF, when now WWE became raw and raw became like, you know, more adult oriented. Mm-hmm. It started to grow up with its audience because it's like, well, we had these kids. We had these kids in the '80s, and up when we had them with us up until about 1990, and so, you know, now these guys are now these kids are older. These guys and gals are older, and they have more income. Let's bring them back, but we'll, yeah. well, we'll still have toys for kids, and we'll still have all this other stuff for kids too. Even though the material is a l- little bit on the adult side at times, if not all the time, but. That's one of those things like it grew up with its audience and it brought it back in. And I think that's right. one thing that Marvel and DC kind of do. They're like, well, we had these kids reading books in the 80s. So let's I'm not saying pander to them, but they keep going back to them at the same time. So a lot of the stories are like older, you know, older in content. And some of these books to me come off like FX TV shows. Sure. And at the same time, like, yeah, when we were kids, dude, Frank Miller, Daredevil, technically we probably shouldn't have been reading that. <laughs> but at the same, absolutely. Oh, but at the but at the same time, though, like you know, our parents had the common sense to say, you know what, our kids are not going to turn into pill popping, you know, military psychos <laughs> and try to and try to <laughs> and try to burn down Hell's Kitchen. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it was all right. I mean, my dad let me read Mike Grell's uh, mature themed um, Green Arrow book, which was like non continuity, and it had Black mm-hmm. Canary in it, and Black Canary had no powers. And it was some adult stuff in there, just like the question. My dad let me read um, a Dennis Cowan's question. And, you know, it was not a big deal. But there was still Superman, Wonder Woman, Batman, and all that stuff. And even Batman had adult-themed books technically, too. But there was still stuff that kids could read. Right. Now, it's kind of it's like that, and it's not kind of like that. And there's that imbalance. And I, and I kind of wish comics could bring that balance back because I feel that kids are reading comic books. They're just not reading books the way that we read comic books back then. Mm-hmm. So, but um, I, I'm sorry. I, I took us off on a tangent. I, I apologize. I, I have, <laughs> if you listen to this show long enough, I am the king of tangents. So um, I'll start talking about <laughs> something. And I'll completely forget the point I was trying to make. But going back to kids gravitating to something and like sticking with it or being able to hone in on something, I think a lot of that is also due to the technology that's been presented to them. Sure. Because like with us, when we had Star Wars, we wanted everything Star Wars because when Star Wars came out, that was innovative. That was yeah. innovative filmmaking. It's stuff that we had never seen before. It was presented to us in a way we had never seen. You know, nobody had presented toys, movies, just, you know, everything in general that way before. Right. Now we're, you know, we're used to it now. We, we're, we're used to it. When a movie comes out, we're like, where's the toys? Because we know it's coming. Mm-hmm. No matter how bad the movie is or... <laughs> <laughs> or, or something that you know doesn't need a toy. Terminator Salvation Toys. Who in the fuck asked for Terminator, Terminator Salvation Toys, really? Seriously. Like a, like a five-year-old is going to go up to their mama and say, I want, I want that figure right now. Those things are still at Toys R Us in clearance waiting to be bought. You know, that doesn't make any sense to me. But once again, I digress. Uh, tangents, see, tangents, my friend. I'm sorry, but the the technology is there for them to create and do things that we could never do, or if we could back then, it was so bad. Even we as kids would say this is awful, right? 
you know, kids can kids can make movies with you know, kids can make HD quality movies. Uh, you know, kids have technology. They have the internet. They have all these tools at their disposal. So I understand why they hone in on stuff nowadays because they've got the tools to do literally whatever they want, including possibly take over a small country. So um, <laughs> it, it's it's it that just it fascinates me. It, it really yeah. truly does. And once again, I'm going to put the train back on the track. You have a book coming out soon. Um, if I if my memory serves me correct, that would be solicited through Diamond called uh, Massive Awesome. First off, congratulations on that. Thank you. Thank and you. and second off, what is Massive Awesome all about? <laughs> Massive Awesome is my answer to comics that that uh, might seem to take themselves a little too seriously. <laughs> um, because one thing that, that I think a lot of comics are missing from when I remember reading them is a sense of fun. You know, there was just fun comics out there before. And... Um, you know, this is this is my attempt at that, and so it's absolutely absurd. So, you know, just to prepare you, uh, when I tell you what it's about, it's actually I'm not bullshitting. This is actually the book. Okay. <laughs> it's about a six foot tall piece of bacon, who's a commando for the U.S. government, <laughs> and his best friend Pickle, who thinks he's a zombie, but he's not. And as the book opens up, we learn that Bacon has been set up, he's been framed, and he's been stripped of his position with the government. So. The whole four-issue miniseries is going to be about Bacon and Pickle trying to figure out who set them up and why. You know, you had me at Bacon and Pickle. <laughs> that as long as it's better than the Cowboys and Moo Mesa, yeah, I took it back to the old school. If as long as it's better than that, I'm good. <laughs> that's just that's just absolutely absurd and silly, and that's the type of stuff that I do honestly enjoy. I like that silliness, so... I give you props, one, for being able to solicit that through Diamond because with Diamond, you can never tell what mood they're in when people go to solicit a book if you're not a major publisher. So, you know, I give you props in, you know, for you and Alter, because that's going through Alternative Comics, right? No, that's uh, 215 Inc. Oh, 215 Inc.? Oh, well, excellent. Well, props to you and 215 Inc. for being able to push that through. Yeah, we've been sweating. Uh, we actually just found out that, that Diamond accepted it, and it's pretty cool the way we found out. We were at uh, Wizard World Philly, and guy had a booth next to us, and, you know, really nice guy and everything, and I guess he was stepped away from the booth, and this girl was there watching his booth for him. Uh, overheard my publisher talking about Massive Awesome and said, you do Massive Awesome? I'm a brand manager at you know for Diamond, and the guy who got the submission has been showing it to all of us. We absolutely love it. Well, we've been waiting and waiting and waiting to hear if this thing's getting accepted or not. Mm-hmm. And so um, Andrew, who's my publisher, was like, well, you know, does that mean good news? And she's like, oh, yeah, you guys are accepted. You know, if you haven't heard yet, you'll be hearing real soon. And she gave him her information. Well, you know, got back from the con and the next day got the acceptance. So, the, the, you know, it's for us, it's huge. I mean, the book's been published for a couple months, for like two months now we've had it. Okay. And uh, trying to push it. You know, just through cons and the website and stuff, you know, it's 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 a slow going, hard process. So to be able to break through and get into Diamond and know that it's going to be in previews, it'll be in the August previews, and for with uh, October or September, I don't remember which, but either September, or October ship date. Um, I think it's October. Nice. But uh, to be able to to you know break through and get that in there, that's really gratifying, uh, especially with a book this this weird. <laughs> as a writer 
the minute you establish a world where there's a six-foot-tall piece of bacon walking around, and he's got, like, a, a, a beautiful blonde girlfriend, and nobody bats an eye at the fact that he's this huge piece of bacon, mm-hmm. it's really freeing. And the gloves are off, and I can do whatever the hell I want. You know what I mean? I've already established <laughs> this. So if that isn't weird, then nothing else could possibly be weird. So, you know, I, I'm thinking I'd try and throw every fun thing that I would want to see in this book. See, I, I feel you. I feel you on that. Um, later on this year, we're trying to release a um, one-shot superhero, a superheroine anthology called Mega Heroes Go, and they're all they're all original original characters written by me. And there's one character that has a story, and the character is called Bear Star. Bear Star is a bear that walks on on his hind legs, uh, kind of like um, let's see, what was the character in the Jungle Book? Was it, I can never, Baloo, was it? Baloo. Baloo, yes. Just like Baloo, okay? Walks on his hind legs, but he lives in the suburbs. And <laughs> he lives in the suburbs and, you know, loves watching TV. He has a wife that looks like Halle Berry. And he has a human son named James Earl and a bear son named Jones. <laughs> and so, so now you got, you, so you got like James Earl Jones up in the house. Anyway, so, and, and, and you can't, you know, don't even ask, don't, don't even ask how like, you know, how does he have a bear son and a human son? Because I'm not supposed to explain that because it's comics, you just deal with it. Absolutely. And so, but not only is he a domesticated bear, he's also a superhero that, um, you know, you know, for this like small city in like uh, erstwhile Wyoming or something. And in the story, in the story, he takes on a fire-breathing Tyrannosaurus Rex. Nice bears versus dinosaurs. How can you not love that? Absolutely. Yes. And the fact in the past five minutes we've talked about bacon, pickles, bears, and dinosaurs. See, <laughs> this is this is comics right here, people. This is comics, not all this serious stuff all the time. Let's lighten it up a bit and have some fun again. Damn right. <laughs> This is on the digital market tip. I mean, there are a lot of digital dist- uh, d- distributors out there, not only just for people who have iPhones, but for people who have dro- you know, Androids or Droid phones and and you know, all types of just handheld devices. There are all different types of ways to get books digitally nowadays, both legally and illegally. Mm-hmm. However, there was an issue that popped up, and I've, you know, I've read it on the internets, and you even told me about it, about um, Apple removing... Jesus hates zombies from the Comixology app, and there was you know there's controversy behind that because there's nothing in the book itself that would denote it being pulled. You know, trust me, I've seen a lot worse from bigger publishers, and oh, absolutely. But you know, it being pulled, so you know, but it it got pulled. Now, granted, it's still available for those that are on the you know Droid market, if memory serves me right. Correct. Oh yeah, it's it's actually one of the top downloaded comics on the Droid marketplace. Really? Okay, fascinating. I, st- I still want to hear your take on the situation as as a whole. I mean, I know how, I know how it makes you feel. I mean, I would be just as upset as you are about the whole situation. But but I just wanted your take on the um, on on it as a whole. Well, it's. I mean, you know, there's a level of hypocrisy to it. That that's what bothers me. Um, if they're going to have their standards and practices and shut certain things out, then that's their business. I mean. You know, they own it. They own the marketplace. The Apple can do what they want. Um, but if you're going to take something like Jesus Hate Zombies, which, yeah, it has swearing, 
but it's a black and white book, so the violence is all black and white, so there's no actual, you know, blood that you're seeing. Plus, it's not a realistic style. I mean, it's over-the-top, stylized, cartoony stuff. And you're going to say that that's no good, you know, that that is not allowed, but you're going to allow kick-ass? That, to me, says, look, we know kick-ass is going to rake in the money so we can turn a blind eye to our own standards and practices Mm -hmm. because it's Marvel, because it's got a movie, because it's big names. And that that's just, you know, that's just bullshit. So, and, it's, and they don't even give a reason. You know, it's just, oh, it's just not, you know, it doesn't meet our standards. It doesn't, you know, it's it goes against our standards. Yeah. If they're scared of the religious thing, then they clearly haven't looked at it. Right. <laughs> you know, and so they're they're rejecting it based on a title. Now, what I want to know is why did it get approved? And... You know, and I feel bad for Comixology as much as I feel bad for myself because Comixology, they were awesome. They've always been super cool to me. Mm-hmm. They were excited about the book. They were excited about putting it out. Um, you know, I did an interview with them. They they hyped it when it was released. And then it got pulled after six hours. So that didn't make them look good. That made them look like, you know, they didn't know what was going on. Right. And, and so, you know, just all around, it, it just... I don't know, it just smacks of so much hypocrisy that, that it almost makes me not want to be involved with it in the first place. Right. Well, it, not only that, it's extremely disturbing because not only has it happened to you, but it's happened to other publishers as well. Absolutely. Um, and, and, you know, and I'll, and I'll read a story about, you know, whether it be, uh, I guess, like a label like Prism, or there's also a story about, if memory serves me right, that I read recently about Oscar Wilde or something like that, um, that, like, they blocked out scenes on the comic pulled the comic, put the comic back up with the block scenes and took the blocks, then like took the censor tags off the book. I it's and, I, and I'm generalizing there, but there it's still just disturbing to me and, and I and I just don't get it. You know, either you follow the rules across the board or you don't. But granted, once again, it is their company. They can do what they want, but just because it is still doesn't make it right. Exactly. I, I'm a, look if they want to have standards, post their standards. Say, look, these things aren't allowed. And, and then enforce it. Mm-hmm. You know? But let people know, because why waste your time submitting things? Oh, I hope it gets into the, you know, Apple Marketplace. I hope I, this can get on iTunes. And you have no idea. I mean, it's so, it seems so arbitrary. And I'm sure it's not going through one person. And if they don't have a set level of standards, then it's kind of at, at you know, multiple people's discretion. So, so because, it, you know, say Jesus Saves Zombies was submitted on a Tuesday and it went to, you know, Bob Smith on Tuesday and he's got a religious hang-up, he says no. What if it was submitted on Wednesday and it went to Jane Doe and she doesn't have that hang-up? Would it get through? Right. You know what I mean? So it's, it's, it's the lack of, of consistency. Oh, no. oh, sorry, go ahead. I was saying, censorship in, censorship in general is, you know, a bad idea. I mean, nobody's going to question that, but... Like we said, it's their company. They can they can do what they want. It's just like you know, working for a company that's got a dress code, or working for a company that's got a no ta- visible tattoos policy. You know, if you know that going in, and then you go there and work there and bitch about it, shame on you. Mm-hmm. If you don't know going in, and there's nothing posted, and then all of a sudden this is slapped on you, it's shame on them. So to me, this is this is clearly a case of shame on them when it comes to Apple. Now, my whole thing is with this submission policy, and is there like a general submission policy for applications? Is there a submission policy for comics? Is there a submission policy for video games? See, to me, 
I feel that there should be different divisions. So then that way, at least there's a little bit more, um, uh, I don't want to say democratic process, but a democratic process in how, you know, what gets accepted and what doesn't get accepted. Or is it just like this one big collective <laughs> that one day says yes and the other day may say no? You know, am I just like submitting my app or my comic to like the MCP on Tron and it just, and then it just eats it up and says, you know, end game, end of line, and that's it. So I, I that that confuses me, and that's something maybe that I need to go in and delve into and investigate a little bit more. But at least as you, as we as we mentioned, there are alternatives, and it's good, and it's good that you have them. It's good that we all have them. Um, so, you know, especially well, sure. for, for small press publishers. Absolutely. I mean, this is a new frontier for for all of us. You know, like. I don't think print's ever going to go away, but I think digital's going to get bigger. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, uh, you know, as small press guys, we've got to be on that bleeding edge because we're already facing an uphill battle, and it's always going to be an uphill battle. So if we can't stay as ahead of the game as we can, then we're going to be that much further behind. So for companies like Apple to shut us out for whatever reason only makes it that much harder for us. I mean, we already deal with that with Diamond cutting down the, the size of the catalog and, and upping their benchmarks and making it harder for small press to, to get in and stay in previews. And then when, when we've got the digital medium where, you know, all right, we can, anybody can put out a webcomic. Anybody, you know, can, if they can, you know, get web space, can, can get their stuff up there. Nobody's telling them it's not good enough. Nobody's telling them you can't have it up there. That's how, that's how mobile seemed for us. Mm -hmm. And now for people to say, you know, people like Apple to say, no, this can't be up there, then it's yet again, small press having to fight that much harder. It's funny you mentioned webcomics, and it just this kind of just hit me a moment ago when you mentioned how there are all different types of webcomics, some good, some bad, some great, some just straight-up booty. This reminds me of the 80s, and I, I, I hate to keep you know, going back to, you know, to quote-unquote my heyday, but during the 80s where you had a gajillion publishers and, and you had a multitude of comic book distributors, so comic book stores had to look through all these distribution books to get all the books they needed, but... You had a slew of small press people. Mm -hmm. I mean, a slew, and not all the books were good, and some of the, and a lot of the books weren't good. But, and you had a lot of, you know, people copycat off the turtles, or you know, Boris the bear, or whatever was hitting. There was always somebody trying to copy off of it, but there was also original stuff too on top of that. And you just had this slew of books. And some of the books were as inexpensive as somebody like going to a copy or printing it out and stapling it, and it was getting sold. Mm -hmm. you no, know, I mean, Ashcan books were like all the rage. But you also had all types of stuff, and there was just like this just versatile amount of comics, and it just wasn't the big guns. And that's how I kind of see web comics sometimes. Absolutely. Because, I mean, there's so many genres, you know, so many niche markets. I mean, art quality could be wonderful and make you say, why isn't this person, you know, working here, here or there? And then there are just some that just make you want to make your eyes explode. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, it's that boom. I just this whole webcomics, you know, boom itself, which has been around for a while. It's not like this stuff just showed up. 
right. it's been it, it's been around forever. It's just I think over the last two years, people are actually really starting to recognize it, and it's yeah, it's major. Um, it's it's really major. As far as regular comics go, are there any like regular comics that you know you're reading, right? You know, reading as of this moment that you enjoy right now. <laughs> to be honest, no. Um, and it's not for lack of want, and it's not for lack of good stuff out there. It's just um, I'm so immersed in the creation that the last thing I want to do is inadvertently influence myself. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So I don't I, like I have this fear of if I'm reading something, it's going to subconsciously translate to my writing, and then somebody's going to be like, "You are an original fucker!" Like you know that just came out. So uh, yeah, I try not to you know read too much. Um, while I'm, you know, knee-deep in stuff, if I have lulls, if I'm, like, waiting for stuff to come out or whatever, uh, that's when, you know, I take and, and catch up usually with trades uh, on the stuff that I like to read. Um, but, but there's, like, you know, there's good stuff out there that I really enjoy, like Chew. I think Chew's a fantastic series. I absolutely love that book. Um, and Choker, which, you know, by Ben McCool and Ben Templesmith, fantastic book also. So, you know, it's not like I don't read anything. Right. Um but right now I'm not, but, like, those are the things that, like, you know, I know that I'm going to get the latest of, and uh, once my, my writing slows down a little bit, I'm, I'm going to dive into them. Now, on the convention tip, are there any more conventions um, that you're going to be at this year, or, did it, or is convention season over for you, or is it just ramping up? Um, I've got Baltimore that I'm going to do again this year, uh, which is last year was my first time doing that con and it was absolutely fantastic so i'm really looking forward to it and there, there's an outside chance that i might be doing new york city con uh i got denied an artist alley table which which really uh irked me but i wasn't the only one and there's much bigger names than me that didn't get tables so i shouldn't feel too bad um but my my publisher for uh, the devil's trail which is my western creator's edge press they they're thinking about getting a, a small press booth um, and if they do, then then I'll be out for New York City Con as well. And then in October, I'm heading out to Seattle for an actually for a zombie convention called ZomCon, which I'm going to be a special guest at, which uh, I think will be a lot of fun. That takes me back to the whole zombie thing. Why do you feel that people have continued to love zombies so much over the past few years, especially in comics? Um, I think well, I think they speak to a primal fear that we all have, which is a complete loss of identity. Uh, that's what happens, you know, in my opinion, that's what makes zombies so scary is, you know, it's your neighbors, it's your friends, it's your family, but it's not, um, because, you know, everything that made them then, them, them, besides look is gone. So that's kind of terrifying. Um, that, and, and I think it's just such a diverse genre. You can do so much with it. You can, you know, you, you can, uh, piggyback social commentary on zombies. You, you can, you know, for the hardcore f- horror fans, you can just go, you know, balls to the wall with them. Um, you, you can make it a funny situation. That, you know, there's so much you can do with it that, you know, we always hear uh, when an, when another zombie comic comes out, you know, that it's a dead genre. It's, you know, it's it's played out. It's oversaturated or whatever. It's never going anywhere. I don't care how many times people say that. You know, it, it'll ebb and flow just like any other, you know, like like vampires you know, are huge right now, and of course that's going to die off, and then it's going to come back. It's never going to go away, because there's just universal things that that we, as a species, find horrifying and interesting, and, you know, monsters in general fit into that, and especially when we're the monsters. 
So, you know, zombies, that's us. We're those monsters. Vampires, that's us. You turn us into a vampire. Werewolves, that's humans turning into a monster. Anytime a human becomes the monster, we're going to be interested in it. And it doesn't matter how much of it's out there, people are drawn to it. I may not be the biggest zombie fan in the world. I'm very choosy when it comes to zombie stuff. I'm very, <laughs> I'm very, very choosy. Like there, I have friends that just like gush over Marvel zombies and I, and I, and I, I just look at them and I'm like, you know what? I was good after the first one. That that's all mm-hmm. I needed. I was, I was good. But, um, you know, stuff like Jesus hates zombies. Um, I dig it because it's fun. It's, you know, it's fun. It's campy. It's silly. But at the same time, you know, there are moments of, of seriousness to it, and it's just a good mix for me. So that's why I enjoy it, and that's why I wanted to have you on the show, because we try to talk about stuff we enjoy. You know, I don't, I don't think there are enough people out, out here that talk about stuff they enjoy about comics. Sometimes we talk too much about what we dislike about comics, and when we do that, we don't talk about how we can change the game. But you know, but when I see you doing what you're doing, trying to you know getting projects out here, there, you know, whether it be with uh, Creators Edge, whether it be with Two One Five, yep, Two One Five Inc. Two One Five Inc. Or whether it be with Alterna, you know, you're putting you know stuff out there. You're you're doing things, and you're you know you're bringing fun into comics. So I appreciate you doing that. Well, thank you. Last thing we'll talk about before we end this interview is the uh, Devil's Trail. Can I call it a supernatural western? Absolutely. All right. Supernatural, supernatural Western, um, you doing the uh, writing. Jim McMunn, who I also met at the Pittsburgh Comic-Con, doing the artwork. Um, what was it like? Well, two things. One, what is the story about? And two, what was it like working with Jim? Uh, the story is about a lone cowboy uh, chasing a man in black uh, across the West. Um, you know, it, it's, a, it's a tale that's been told a thousand times. It's one of my favorite types of stories, so I wanted to try and put my stamp on it. And, and the twist comes in in that the man in black actually works kind of as a vessel for demons. So if he touches you, you know, with his bare hands, he can transfer a demon straight from hell into you. And, and, and so, he, so he acts kind of as a gateway. And uh, people then become possessed, become very sick, and eventually that demon manifests itself like by kind of ripping right through them. So our our uh, our hero Herschel is, for some reason that we don't know yet, uh, pursuing this man, and you know, kind of, will stop at nothing to get to him. And he's always a day or two days behind, and so he's always dealing with this man whose name's Jericho's wake, and so. It's it's going to be one of it's going to be a story of redemption. It's going to be a story of again of faith. I deal with faith a lot in my writing um, because it's a subject that fascinates me, and uh, you know I think it's a subject that's really powerful. So you know, and, and I love I love the idea of playing in the old west. It's so gritty and and I don't know. It's so real, even though it's such a fantastical story. I mean, it's a, you know it's a supernatural story. It's larger than life, but something about the Old West and setting something in the Old West just gives it this gritty realism that that as a writer is a really fun place to, to be for a while. I think a lot of that has to do with the added isolation of the Wild West. With a character like your, with your lead character out there doing his thing, he's, you know, he's on the hunt alone. Mm-hmm. And in the Wild West, sometimes there were just periods where there was no one to be found for miles. Or even if you found a little town, even though the town is somewhat of a community, you're still 
technically isolated because you're the outsider. So, Absolutely. And you know, and and being isolated can also have a play, can also play on faith in many. It can also play on faith in a story for that character in many ways too. You know, do they believe in him? Does he believe in the? You know, does he believe in others? And 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 all of this stuff. It 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 gets it's it's heavier than people think. And yeah. and that's what I always enjoyed about westerns, even the spaghetti westerns. Which the spaghetti westerns are what make or what made me like westerns. Period. <laughs> You know, and I know people think they're corny. I don't, I, you know, I don't care. I love those. You know, sure. the man with no name stuff, like all that Clint Eastwood stuff, love mm-hmm. it through and through. And even the older stuff, like, uh, well, not older stuff, but well, older as in a few, you know, years ago, Pale Rider. Pale Rider is one of my um, favorite favorite westerns um, ever. And please let me say I got that title right because I'm going to check it right now because if I jack that up, I will be pissed. Uh, <laughs> yep, Pale Rider, directed by Clint Eastwood. With uh, Clint Eastwood, mm-hmm. Michael Moriarty, and um, and Chris Penn. Yeah, I love that movie. <laughs> but yeah, I, I'm sorry, I digress. the The art looks really good, and it tell you know, to me the art looks really good. Sequentials look good. Um, you know, Jim's a hell of an artist, and I think he's a very underrated talent. So um, I think you've definitely got a good thing going on there. Oh, it's, working with Jim is awesome. I mean, I think I think he's. He's on the brink. He's going to break through. Um, you know, I have no doubt because he's as good as he is and he's fast, which is really hard quality to find in in up-and-coming artists. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of artists get so, uh, get so worked up on, on getting their page just right that the time can suffer. And Jim is able to put out amazing pages at a rate that just is ridiculous. So he, I think he's got all the ingredients. Um, he just needs that project to, to showcase it enough where then he's going to break through. So for, I count myself incredibly lucky to be working with him on this. Um, you know, he, he got me... I was excited about this story. This is actually one of the oldest stories I have that I've wanted to do and uh, was never really able to find the right fit for it. And so... When I when I pitched it at him and, and he immediately like literally within like twenty minutes sent me a page of sketches of the characters and he'd already nailed it you know that for me was just one of those moments where I was like oh my god I can't believe this book is gonna happen I'm so excited about it so yeah working with Jim has been you know fantastic before we go where can people find out more about you and where can they get some of your material. Uh, well, my personal website is captionsandballoons.com, and um, they can find me on Facebook, uh, Twitter, which is just Stephen RL. Um, I'm on both of those all the time, so you know those are good places to reach me. Um, any of my publishers' websites, uh, 215inc.com, you know, for more information on Massive Awesome, and uh, you can actually pick up the issue now since it's you know already published and selling through there or you can wait until uh, it's in previews and then which would be even better because then people would go to their local comic shop and get them to order um, alternacomics.com for all the Jesus Hate Zombies stuff and um, oh man I don't want to screw it up I think it's actually creatorsedgepress.com for Devil's Trail stuff thank you again Stephen for coming on the show and um, doing this interview man it, I do appreciate it I 
had a good time talking to you. Always have a good time talking to you. And uh, I'm just glad that we can help continue to, uh, you know, get your name out there to more people. Well, I really appreciate it, man. It's, uh, you know, it's been fun. I I love talking to you as well. So, you know, it, it just feels like a conversation with a friend to me. We are here joined by Mark Johnson, a.k.a. Uh, Hell's Fire on the comic forums. He is the host of the Vias for Vertigo podcast. How are you doing today, sir? Full and tired. <laughs> I know how you feel, brother. This, once again, is, uh, was, is a, a podcast that is actually long overdue. What we're going to talk about, we're going to talk about a little bit of uh, Transformers stuff. We're going to talk about Beast Wars versus Beast Machines. This might be actually a very uh, short one-sided fight. Yeah, <laughs> yes, this probably will be a one-sided fight um, as we uh, attempt to discuss uh, what we like or what we didn't like or what which show was better. So, and we'll also talk about some other stuff too. So, don't you worry about that. But before we get started, Mark, can you do the people a favor and tell them about your Vias for Vertigo podcast? I, I do a pod a half hour weekly for the most part podcast called V for Vertigo, which can be found on iTunes or at vfervertigo.blogspot.com. And Vertigo Comics actually got me back in the reading comics probably in the early 2000s uh, from Preacher. And then it's it's just because I stopped reading superhero comics, started reading Vertigo stuff and yeah, read a lot more now because of the show. Actually, the premise of the show was there was no one doing uh, covering Vertigo comics. And then I wanted to discuss and read stuff with people and i used to have two co-hosts but now i don't so it's just me <laughs> <laughs> now, now you also have interviewed some um some people that have done work for vertigo too right oh yeah uh, i interviewed uh karen berger and you know comic geek speak hasn't <laughs> in your face no, i'm just kidding <laughs> and uh mike carey and i'm trying to get some other other people on cool it's, it's hard though I probably mentioned I only cover uh, a trader show, and okay. it's spoiler spoiler field. Now, let's go ahead and uh, and start this off. What what spawned this uh, Beast Wars versus Beast Machines uh, um, that came about? We were talking after one of the VS for Vertigo recordings about Unwritten, and you talked about how much you enjoyed Beast Wars, and I brought up Beast Machines, and you were just like, man, you wasn't feeling it, and we agreed on doing a de- doing a debate. So what I'm going to do is this: I'm going to let you have the floor first. And I want you to tell the people why Beast Wars is better than Beast Machines. Well, I I didn't know we were, we were going to do no, a no, debate. No, no, we're not. I was no, just no. going to talk about that or Transformers in general. Oh no, no, we're going to do that. I'm I'm, I'm just what I mean is is just because I'm telling you right now. I have, dude. I watched Beast Machines um, a couple of days ago. I did some research, and as much as I like Beast Machines about a decade ago, I watched that now, man. Boy, that was awful. <laughs> it was yeah, awful. What, what'd you watch? I watched. I watched like the first five episodes and then after watching the first five episodes, I went in, I did research and I looked at the toy lines and, and I just looked at everything. And then I went back and I looked at a couple of beast wars episodes and now I'm starting to see why people complain so much about <coughs> beast machines. After you look at beast wars. Oh yes. You see, you see, uh, you know what was funny about actually beast wars does have one good thing. Uh, or maybe like two, but the best thing is I think it has a far superior uh, theme song. You talking about Beast Machines? Yeah, yeah. Doom, 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 do
Now I'm down. I'm down with the theme song. I'm down with that. But there, everything else about Beast Machines, I didn't. I just didn't really care much for because when you look at the characterization of um, of Optimus in Beast Wars, and then look at his characterization in Beast Machines, or actually all the characters from Beast Machines, yeah, it's all off except for Cheetor. Okay. That that is the only one, but yeah, that's see that that's the major problem. All the characters, they kind of de evolved with no transition. Forget the plot fact that the plot made absolutely no fucking sense and it was redonkulous. And I didn't understand the whole how Megatron had like a, some type of techno virus or something. I get I can understand the fact that at the end of Beast Wars, they were traveling back to the their present, but then he slipped. Or broke free, so then he came a few years, I think, mm-hmm. earlier. But what I don't get is how can one little me- uh, Megatron take over the entire thing? And it's not like all the Autobots are gone or Decepticons. It's not like all of them would even have a transforming mode or would even care because mm-hmm. there's been precedence with some ridiculous virus. And but it's like okay, I could kind of understand that, but what I didn't really understand and hated the most is like why did he hate uh organics there's there's there was nothing no reason for him to hate organics i, I didn't understand that either it was really confusing to me and I, I guess i also didn't understand the whole how the whole organic side came into it too now did they ever have like because i know with like with beast wars now it's technically was beast wars on earth or was that just on a planet that was just way out have you not seen all of Beast Wars, man? No, no, I haven't. No, you got to find some torrents or something. They're out of, <laughs> they're out, it's out of print and mainframe is gone. Yeah, I miss yeah. mainframe. I was what? I think I was freshman or sophomore in high school and then randomly flipped on a channel and I saw Transformers. I was like, oh, what is this? And it was like Beast Wars. And it was the first season. And this was before message boards well as we know them now remember the message boards where you have to type type like all dot something dot something right yes yes yeah i used to i eventually found a couple transformers boards like that and and bought stuff but they kind of helped me out but uh i'm kind of strange from the point but yeah beast wars takes place on uh prehistoric earth but you watching the first season you're like what is this energon was was earth covered in energon at some point and then at the end of season one and it had two moons but at the end of season one one of those moons was a fake and then the aliens that seeded the planet with energon tried to destroy it so it heated or destroyed most of the uh quote-unquote natural energon and then at the end of season two you see ravage have you not watched the agenda no, I haven't watched the. Oh, no, you I, haven't watched the. <laughs> no, I, I haven't. I'm for I'm, I'm, I haven't. If if somebody has a copy of Beast Wars that I can borrow, I'd be more than happy. For I'll be more than happy to check it out. For real, seriously, I, I'm dead serious. I just I didn't. I honestly did not watch it up until like the last couple of episodes. So oh. and see, and that's why when I watched Beast Machines, I was like, oh, this is cool because I didn't know much about Beast Wars, and you know, and that was also during the period of time. Once again, no DVRs. Um, you know, no DVD recorders unless VCR. Yep, unless somebody unless somebody <laughs> taped all the mugs for you, you can forget it. Oh, uh, coincidentally, they called Beast Wars in Canada Beasties. Really? Yeah. That's kind of strange. And no shit. But uh, okay, the at the end of se- season two. 
Uh, Beast Wars is probably some of the best. So uh, a lot of the characters' uh, transformations got changed where they were semi-organic and semi-metal. Uh, they were trans-metals, and then they were like or two animals in one. Uh, hence, uh, they showed, yeah, they showed Megatron's dragon yeah. in uh, Beast Wars. Yeah, that was his uh, trans-metal 2 mode. They eventually, eventually, uh, the signal from uh, when when Prime dies, because uh, Primes always die, yeah, <laughs> reaches back the Cybertron. So the end of the season two, the Decepticons or I guess the Predacons, the Tripredicus Council intercepted that message, and they had a cloaked ship, and it was led by the Decepticon Ravage. And he speaks Russian. <laughs> he talks. It's, it's really tight. He's like, Decepticons forever. <laughs> that is awesome. On Warbird. It's uh yeah, but they find they at the end of that arc they find uh, the Ark, and then Megatron uh, destroys. Prime's head, and it's like a pretty big battle because people die, and of course, uh, Ravage turns on the Maximals, and oh, dude, it's so good. Wait a minute, so Prime gets killed and his head gets destroyed, but yet Prime comes back. Yeah, oh, oh he's Prime. He comes back like two episodes later in Call of the Fusors Part Two, I think. Rhinox looks for him. He grabs his spark and some body. Because the way they did it was, it's it's really weird. Instead of having a a, a full ship full of complimentary crew yeah they had these blank pods and in the beginning episode prime his ship is just a science ship right and they they had to stop but they're the only ones around to stop megatron uh, when they made their trans warp jump but then they fought and then they ejected all the pods over prehistoric earth they the pods would be activated and they wanted to retrieve them in the maximals but then the predacons would override some of them so you got some characters that were Maximals and some Predacons, and then some were blank, and then they used the blank one to bring back Prime. Okay. Now, with Beast Wars and Beast Machines, was this the first... Because I don't remember any of this from Transformers Generation 1, the Transformers that I originally grew up on. Was this the first mention of the term Spark? Ooh, I, I believe so. I believe in G1 they used the term Laser Core. Yeah. I watched all the G1 stuff at least three or four times up and down. So... I never heard once of the mention spark at all. With the Transformer actual live action movies, they use that term spark. So I'm wondering if they pulled that from from this. They probably they probably did. Did you read the comics? Oh, oh wait, which comics? The Marvel comics? The yeah, uh, the Marvel comics. Yeah, I read probably like up to issue like 50, I think. Oh, okay, because I have the whole run now. I got them bound before there were trades available. Oh, awesome. And they uh. And it costs a pretty penny towards the later issues. But, but it's weird. Like, there are two different uh, separations or, like, reasonings that they split off in the comics mm. and then in the TV show. Like, if you remember the comics, the only way you could make Transformers was to, like, the uh, Prime had the Matrix and the Creation Matrix was the only thing that could make new Transformers. You remember that? Yes, I do remember that. Yes, okay. But then in the show, I mean, Wheeljack made the Dinobots, and then Starscream, like, stole prisoners and made the Combaticons, and then Vector Sigma 
probably one of the better G1 episodes made. But the Stunticons and the Aerobots. Right. See, but then, and then another thing that got split off, which, because it's weird, like, you remember, I actually liked the last episode of Beast Machines because it's a nice finality and average everything. You remember how that end, how, ends? Wait a minute, how did that, did, did they end up, um, Wait a minute, didn't they end up like, because there were like a lot of drones just walking like all around Cybertron and, and Beast Machines. Weren't they able to like uh, not cure the drones, but like at least eliminate that and give everybody quote unquote life again? I, I can't remember. Well, yeah, well, that's like the last shot where over the horizon you see all these Transformers back with their sparks. Okay. But Prime and uh, Megatron, they fall into Cybertron's uh, organic core and kind of techno-organic Cybertron. And what's what's weird is that, like on the show, supposedly the Quintessons created the Transformers, right? Right. And then the Transformers rebelled. But in the comics, and at some of the other incarnations of the show, you have Cybertron is actually Primus, and he created the Transformers. It's kind of splits <laughs> off. Yeah, it, yeah it, can get, it can get real confusing, man. Well, I hope I'm making it clearer. No, 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 no. You're making it clear. I'm just saying, like, because I'm, I'm like, I guess what I'm saying is, is that you know, comic continuity doesn't specifically have to follow like the animated continuity, but it can also get kind of crazy and mixed up at the same time. Uh, in doing uh, some research for the show, I kind of reread that Transformers DK book. Okay. And Simon Furman, who's written a lot of the comics, he actually tried to combine the two, ah. saying that the Quintessons, they believe that they did it, but Cybertron is actually Primus. But then in the in the show, or all the shows from G1 to Beast Wars to Beast Machines, it doesn't seem to that, that Primus is ever there. And they had an origin for Unicron. I don't know if you remember that episode. No, no, I don't remember that either. Wow. Oh, uh, it was like one of the better animated ones because it, it looked Japanese. Uh, Japanese is like Call of the Primitives post movie. And like all the animals from the, the original Predacons and Skylinks and the Dinobots and even the cassette guys, they like flew. And then this, this one guy, apparently he created Unicron and then he had another energy being he created that was out of control. And then Grimlock saved the day because Grimlock kicks butt. <laughs> I just remember because especially as a kid reading the you know watching the Transformers animated series and then watching the movie and then reading the comic book like my mind back then could not break or un, you know break the fact of why isn't the comic book not following the cartoon series perfect example when the first like five the first like four issues of Transformers at the end of issue four Shockwave is the big bad yeah and then you watch the cartoon Shockwave's the biggest pussy in the world. Yeah. You know, he's just pretty much like Megatron's lackey, and that's it. He just sits at the station, chills out, gives a couple of reports, cries a little bit, and then goes back to work. But in the comic book, he was a badass, and, you know, and him and Megatron got into some fights and some throwdowns, and even the Dinobots got into a big-ass scrap with Shockwave. Now, that stuff was cool. I didn't, yeah. I didn't mind that. I thought that was awesome. What really got me, or really irked me, yet I still read the book. Okay, Prime died in the movie. Understood. Understood. Basically, um, it was for a new, uh, just for a new toy line. 
you know, yeah. because like, and, like Andy Jewett and I talked about that for like a quick second on his interview. We, you know, he said it was just all for a major toy change because all the G1 kid guys that we grew up with during that time wiped them out. Here comes the next generation with Rodimus and Cup and Springer and RC, Wheelie and all those cats. They were all lame, too. I liked Rodimus up until... Uh, you like Beast Machines, though. No, but let me hear me out, though, see? Hear me out. I said I liked Rodimus up until the movie was over and then they started the new series. I liked that series for the simple fact that show became more sci-fi-based than it ever had been. But my problems were this. Rodimus was a douche. Yeah. Every time he every time he had a problem, he would short circuit himself to talk to the Matrix. I'm like, dude, man up and just be a leader. I used to hate that. Hate it. But back to my point. I'm sorry. So they kill Prime in the movie. Understandable, fine, whatever. In the comic book, they did the dumbest thing. <laughs> so stupid. Now, I know you got this issue because you got it bound. Megatron and Prime hooked themselves up to a computer game. Oh, <laughs> the VR fight. Yes. There's this like boy who's like the mediator. And Prime technically wins, but then Megatron says, no, Prime cheated. And Prime's like, well, he's right. I cheated. And I'm, you know, and that's, you know, and I'm an honorable person. So tells the boy to hit the switch. He picks up his, like, Atari joystick and hits the button and, like, Prime dies. I was like, but, this is but the- he, he saves a copy on his floppy yeah, disc. D- dude, that was awful. <laughs> <laughs> That was so bad. And I remember after that issue was done, I remember putting down the book. And I didn't buy Transformers for like a year. Then I came back and then I enjoyed it again. And there were so many things about that comic book that I loved, though. Just like, you know, the rotating artists. Even even though I will admit, because I've got a couple, just a couple of the Generation 1, or the, I'm sorry, the Marvel Comics trades from, uh, I think this was when, oh, that British company was releasing them. I can't remember their name right now because IDW released them for a while, too. But anyway. It's the ones with, like, Scorponok and stuff. So, but anyway. The, the Headmasters one? No, no. Yeah. Well, this is when... I don't know if it's... Well, I think they were using the Headmasters. The Pretenders were in it. Do you remember the Pretenders? Oh, yeah. The, te- the like, 20-foot people. Uh, that was, like, the dumbest. How could you mistake that 20-foot guy as a human? Yeah, yeah. It was There was some bizarre stuff in there. I'm like, and this was a little weird. And, like... Megatron and Ratchet were like merged into one and they Oh were, yeah, yeah, I remember that. And like they were begging Prime to they were begging Prime to kill him and Prime wouldn't do it and Cup and Cup was like, "Man, you've gone soft." <laughs> and Prime was like, "Well, screw it. I, you know, maybe you're right. Maybe I just need to step down." There was some interesting stuff in there, but it was also weird too, but like Furman, you're right about Furman, man. He had that universe on lockdown for ages. Well, it was actually he did like half of it. I, mean, I forgot the name of the other dude. He started it. He did like the first 40 issues or something. Was it Badansky? That might be it. Yeah, I think that is it. No, oh, dude, if you thought that uh, floppy disk issue was terrible, you didn't, you didn't, you must not have gotten the car wash of doom. Oh, no, I remember that, man. There's still some of that <laughs> stuff I try to block out my mind, man. With Rat Bat, the car wash of doom. I'm like, what the fuck is this? They had some silly stuff, man. Uh, did did you ever read G, the G two run? There's only twelve issues. Oh, um, Generation two. The front cover had a Optimus Prime with the bullets in his head. It was like, this is not your father's Autobot. Hey, you read that? Yeah, I read some of them. What? You don't? Dude, that shit's hella good. You don't I, like it? I, you know what? I think I can tell you what turned me off from it. This is what this is what turned me off from it. I love the artwork. I thought the artwork was just tough. It was, to me, it was like Transformers UK, and so I, I dug that. And also, Doug, they had the swarm, right? Yeah. I like that, too. But I think the thing that set me off and made me not like it 
was that I read, because I think before the series started, there was in G.I. Joe, because I, I used to have these issues. This was toward the end of the G.I. Joe run. It was G.I. Joe featuring Snake Eyes and Ninja Force. And it featured Cobra Commander and also had the new Megatron from Transformers Generation 2. And supposedly this stuff took place before the Transformers G2 series. Yeah. And um, I remember reading these issues, and I'm like, this shit is awful. I hated it, and it, and it put a sour taste in my mouth. Now, I still have a couple of copies of, um, a couple issues of Transformers G2, and those ones I have, I like, but it'll probably read better now than it did when I read it back then, though. Well, see, I didn't read the Joe stuff. I, all I knew was that the Cobra tried to make a deal with Megatron, and they even gave him his tank body, yeah. and then he, he turned on him, of course. And that's all I know, but I haven't read it. But if you like the sci-fi stuff and, uh, like, post-cartoon or post-movie in the cartoon. Mm-hmm. The G2 was excellent because the story was... It's either pronounced Jaxus or Jihaxus. And he, him and his Transformers came and they were like terraforming worlds, right? In the mini Cybertrons. Okay. And then like Prime. And then well, like most of the series, or the 12 issues anyway, took place off Earth. And then Prime would try to stop them. And then eventually him and Megatron team up after... Megatron says piss off because Megatron almost dies. And they, they each try to fight him one-on-one. And he's hella powerful. And it turns out that his group of Transformers, they were part of the Decepticons. And they only call, the, they call themselves the Cybertronians now because they're above the war. Okay. And they're busy making their own galactic empire. And these Decepticons became the Cybertronians and are way stronger. But then at the end, you know, Prime saves the day and defeats him and all his Transformers and everything. And then you see this... Like, I forgot the Liege Maximo or something. You see this other Transformer who says that he, who I think was one of the original six. Yeah. And he's like, he, he like, he was also related to Prime and uh, Megatron or something like that. And you're like, whoa, I want to know where this goes. And then you're like, that's issue 12 was the last one. I don't know what happens. <laughs> <laughs> but it's really good to see other Transformers that left during the war and then started their own empire and were like the board. Oh, pick up the issues. They're only 12 issues. Oh, man. I'm sure I'll find those in cheap bins for, you know, easily. I just remember that cover to issue one because it screams 90s because yeah. it was that, you know, real <laughs> thick paper stock and like with like kind of like that 3D imaging <laughs> and trifold opening cover. Oh, dude. <laughs> <laughs> that was uh, good stuff. <laughs> it was. It, it, it was good stuff. It just, it just cracks me up. Maybe you can answer this question for me, seeing that we're talking about the Transformers comic books. In the original Marvel series, was Gal- were Galvatron and Megatron two separate entities? Oh, here, okay, this is where things get a bit confusing, right? Okay. So, in some, like, cross things or whatever, the, the movie ties in with the comic books. Like, remember the part in the movie where after uh, Leonard Nimoy, uh, I mean, uh, Megatron becomes Galvatron? Right. And then is like Decepticons to Earth. Apparently, this might have only been in the UK, uh, at least most of it. But apparently, they went back in time, Earth. Oh, <laughs> and they did that in the in the regular Marvel one run. Like Galvatron was in it, but he was from like the future in an alternate timeline. And then it kind of drove him crazy because he was like, "Oh wait, you're you're Megatron, and if I kill you, well, that means I'm no longer here." And they also used some weird. Uh, time traveling system of displacement so 
random Transformers would bounce to who knows where. And then I don't think they ever said they went anywhere. And then you get shit like Ultra Magnus and then Galvatron. And Ultra Magnus is a pretty badass taking on Galvatron. Mm. Is so? What was your question again? No, no, I was just asking. I was, I was just asking if in the comic book, if Galvatron and Megatron were they separate entities or were they one oh. entity? Because I rem, I recall in my head, I recall there was an issue. Suppose if, if, I, if I remember right, it's like Galvatron versus Megatron, and it was toward the end of the series. If yeah. I remember right, because I remember seeing this at a comic book store and I almost bought it and I passed up on it. And, like, the cover, if I remember right, has Galvatron, like, standing, looking all hard. And behind him, you see, like, all this glass. And in the image of the glass, you see Megatron. And I just couldn't remember. I didn't. And from when I, when I thought about that, I was like, okay, wait a minute. I thought they were one and the same. So, and I, and I had stopped reading the book then. So, I didn't know if they were pulling from Animated Universe, Comic Book Universe, <laughs> merging both. It's very confusing for me. They were both. Okay. It depends on which Galvatron. <laughs> Which time traveling Galvatron? <laughs> oh man, God. yeah, that is confusing as hell. Yeah, I don't. I, it's it's weird. Oh it's yeah, weird, now, yeah. It was Bob Budansky. Oh, it was Budansky? Okay, cool. You remember the in the original limited series uh, issue number three where Spider Man shows up? Oh yeah, I do. Black suit Spidey. Yeah. Oh dude, when I was a kid, I thought that was the coolest fucking thing ever. Uh, that's why they had him in that. For that one and only issue, and then I guess when they got picked up, they were like, "Fuck it, They're, this isn't part of the Marvel U." Oh yeah, Marvel Marvel saw to that personally. They they cut that out. They cut that out real quick because even I think if I remember right, they even acknowledged that that Spider Man is not Earth six one six Spider Man. And even back then as a kid, I'm like, 616, what the hell are they talking about? You know, I'm like, I don't understand. So they were yeah. saying that was a Spider-Man from an alternate reality. I'm like, well, if that's the case, why why don't I see an alternate Cap or an alternate Hawkeye, you know, show up in the Transformers universe then? I'm like, Spidey was in your book, homie. <laughs> he, was, well, he was in your book. Well, maybe in their uh, universe, Earth is the center and the beginning of all life in the universe. Uh, possibly. Nah, I'm just kidding. I just read Blackest Night. Right. Fucking, o- fucking overrated. <laughs> <laughs> See, I haven't finished reading it yet. Oh, I'm sorry if I spoiled that it's part. Okay. Dude, you got to go on YouTube and watch some Beast Wars, man. I know. I I, I have to. See? Go to, he- go to Hero, dude. Uh, but you might not get it without the characterization of Dinobot. And, mm. and Starscream makes an appearance. Really? Yeah, but it's not voiced by the same dude because he's dead. Oh, See? Who, wait, who, voiced, who, who used to voice Scar- Starscream? Oh, Chris Lotta. I, I want to say Chris Lotta. Mm-hmm. It's the same dude that did Cobra, uh, Cobra, Cobra Commander. Commander. Oh, yeah. Well, that makes that that makes sense. That makes but, sense. But oh, actually, I just remembered some. You might not like these stories because there are spiders in it. No, see, that's different. See, I, can, I if if it's like something like that, I can watch. That's not gonna bug me. You got you got black arachnia and tarantulas. Oh, and tar- tarantulas is pretty. He's pretty tight. Oh, that's cool. See, that's not going to bother me. It's different than like playing a video game. Like for those that don't, for people that don't know, listen to this podcast. I do have a kind of a phobia with spiders, but in a situation like that, see, my my mind my mind can separate that. But like when playing a video game, like that Ghostbusters game, no, that ain't gonna fucking happen. So um, because I'm not dealing with the big fucking spider. But um, no car the cartoon. I'm down. I'm good. Oh, dude! Uh, do you find out Tarantulas is actually descended from Unicron? What? Yeah, well, in the I don't know if you bought you bought these G one 
comics. The uh, Unicron sent some people in the past to, I think, try to take over that Earth timeline and or to retrieve Galvatron. I'm not sure. So, like, it, he has those few Transformers, and I guess Tarantulas came from him. Well, it makes sense if Primus created Transformers, and then even in the movie, Unicron reformatted into, like, Galvatron and Cyclonus. So... Yeah, but you find out Tarantulas is part of, and you're like, what? That is crazy. He's, oh, and Unicron's head makes an appearance. See, that's you gotta, cool. You gotta watch, dude. It's so good. Even <laughs> like you watch it, and like I don't, I don't know if you remember Rhinox from Beast Machines. Yes, I do. It was kind of cool that he became a traitor, but watching him in Beast Wars, he he is the spiritual one, right? Okay. And he, but he, he's like the big, strong dude, nice spiritual one, and he, and he'll have some fucking. Like hand cannon chain guns at you, and he'll just like tear shit up. He'll be like, Megatron! It's time to retreat. <laughs> or he'll be beating fools, man. Like it's, it's, it's like bloody and violent because you can get away with that shit, but there's also actual blood. Like when Dinobot takes his sword mm-hmm. and sticks it in Inferno, the ant, you see blood spew and sparks. Yeah, dude. It's wow. I mean, there's, there's a lot of humor, too. Like, some people don't like this episode, but there's an episode where the Predacons fuck up the Maximals somehow, or at least Rhinox specifically, and to keep his internal systems from exploding, he has to eat beans, right? And then he farts in the episode. <laughs> like, he beats the Predacons that way, and Megatron's like, ugh. <laughs> it's, it's like a good balance of humor and action especially megatron and his rubber ducky rubber ducky <laughs> yeah he, like you'll see him in an energon hot tub mm-hmm. with a rubber ducky that is hilarious and he'll just be like petting it but that's awesome <laughs> yeah and then you even see like uh black arachnia uh and she's pretty hot for like an animated transformer getting it on with the annoying silver bolt silver bolt I would take that back. He wasn't bad in Beast Machines because he was so fucking annoying in Beast Wars. Like, he was the heroic guy. And then whenever he came on screen, you hear those horns. Dun, 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 dun. And then he'll, like, pose for, oh, you know, risk effect. And you're like, I hate you, Silverbolt. He wasn't. <laughs> it was kind of com- uh, comedic, but it's just like, I like Rat Trap's humor better. Who became a pussy in Beast Machines somehow. See, that's something that, that's the one thing I noticed <laughs> From the couple episodes of Beast Wars I, wa- I got to see online as, capo- as opposed to Beast Machines. Like, I mean, I'm sorry, the last couple episodes of Beast Wars that I saw back in the day and, and the Beast Machines stuff I watched online. Let me clarify that. I didn't understand the difference. I didn't understand why they changed up Rat Trap so much. Yeah. And then he had those stupid ass wheels. <laughs> yeah. It's <laughs> like, that, that is dumb. Like, he had wheels in his transmetal form, but mm-hmm. he also had regular feet. But So when he was a mouse, he's like a chrome mouse with wheels and it'll be like burn rubber but he had regular feet too and <laughs> he would use, often use the hubcap as a shield so uh and then he has wheels as feet i was like that's the worst yeah the, a lot of the designs in beast machines i didn't really understand they didn't even transform no that's what annoyed me you, but see you want to know why see because that saved them money <laughs> that saved that saved mainframe money man that's probably why they didn't transform. But the animation was ugly, too. Yeah. Uh, if you look at, I think, Beast Wars Season 1, it's kind of it's shaky. It's very like early 90s-ish. But then when you get to Season 2, 
in season three, the animation is top notch. But then you get the beast machines and everything. There's less detail and it's all at night. And you're like, wow, it looks more cartoonish and less like reboot was fucking phenomenal. It looked good. And so did Beast Wars two and three. to mainframe because didn't dan i think if memory serves me right dan didio once worked for mainframe oh i, I mean i may be and i may be wrong about that and if i am i do apologize because i that is something i didn't research but <clears throat> i didn't research thoroughly but i i was curious to know what happened to main did they just fold the mainframe just fold or i think uh i want to say it's on wiki i think they got bought and then you know they broke up the company or some shit like that i'm not <sighs> I don't know what happened. and Yeah, I was very disappointed. I didn't even get my War Planets. They canceled that after one season. Did you watch that? Yeah, I watched War Planets. <laughs> War Planets was tight. I remember seeing the toys. I was like walking around. And at the, well, shoot, now these department stores are defunct. It's called Hills. Yeah. And I was walking around. And I was like, okay, you know, Toy Biz Toys, whatever. And I saw like War Planets. And like you know, these little like miniature plants, you open them up, and they got these figures and stuff. I'm like, okay, that's that's kind of that's like that looks kind of silly, whatever. And then when I watch the cart, when I watch the cartoon, I'm like, this shit is off the hook. I wondered why it disappeared. <laughs> yeah, they. I guess it went uh, happened around the time mainframe went under. But a lot of the voices from Beast Wars were on War Planets. See, I forgot all about War Planets. Or did you watch the last episode? No, I didn't get to see it. Oh, dude, it, like, you remember the bad guy or whatever, mm-hmm. right? Like, you know, they united and defeated them in the last episode. That, that was predictable. But then at the end, I think out of the sun came a bigger war planet. And everyone was like, holy shit, we defeated nothing. <laughs> <laughs> we, like, defeated the mini Death Star. But there's the real Death Star. And you're like, oh, shit. And then, you know, it, it ended like G2. Um, I want to watch some more. And, <laughs> Never saw it again. Wow. Wasn't somebody... See, I, I thought somebody was supposed to be bringing back some of this mainframe stuff. Because wasn't a couple years... Didn't a couple years ago someone say they are bringing Reboot back? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I hope so. I'll even take a reprinting or reissue of the DVDs because I want to buy them. Yeah. But I, I haven't heard anything. I don't I don't think it'll happen. I think it'll go on the, the wastelands, man. We're never going to see it again. Yeah. Yeah, there's, it's kind of sad if you think about it, man. Yeah, mainframe was Pixar before Pixar. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, well, yeah well, you could say like they're they're yeah, you could say they're the Pixar of television. That's for sure. Yeah. Oh, I wonder if they were. I wonder if mainframe was also responsible for Heavy Gear. Oh, that sounds familiar. Um, because like Heavy Gear was kind of like uh, BattleTech. Okay, let me let me rephrase that. Take BattleTech, and then put BattleTech in a combat arena, and they were like these. There were these teams. Of like of like BattleTech mechs that will like battle each other like each week in an arena or something like that, or they have these other adventures and stuff. I used to love Heavy Gear because Heavy Gear also used to be a really popular um, computer game because this was during the age where you either played the PlayStation or you played um, uh, <coughs> multiplayer games on the computer. Sixty-four or, or Nintendo sixty-four. You're right, Nintendo sixty-four, or you played the multiplayer's on your computer like Wing Commander, uh, Heavy Gear. Uh, Battle Tech or Metal Tech could have been Metal Metal. Tech. I can't remember. It's been so long, but um, 
BattleTech, I think it was BattleTech, and all and all this other stuff. You either you know it was either one of those three, and that was it. But I remember when they made Heavy Gear into a actual series, and the animation is similar to a lot of the mainframe stuff. So I, I thought mainframe did that too. You know, I'm looking on the the wiki page, and it did. Really? They did. They did make Heavy Gear. Heavy Gear, I thought was dope. I really enjoyed Heavy. Yeah, Gear. I don't think I watched that one. Oh, and apparently, uh, Mainframe did get bought out, and then you know their studio got dissolved. Oh, that's awful. So. See, I hate that. It's just like when um, Filmation got bought out by a makeup company. Yeah. And when that happened, it was over. <laughs> it was over. As soon as they got bought out by that makeup company, you know, no more than a year later, they got closed down. It's just one of those things. I'm like, what's your purpose of what's your purpose of owning this company if you know nothing about what they do? Probably you know? just for the name. Yeah. Oh, apparently I was wrong about uh, War Planet. Yeah. Because you me- remember in the day, like they would switch times, and this is like pre DSL and pre social media. Oh yeah. They, like a lot of shows would just switch, and you wouldn't know. Yep. Uh, I guess this happened with um, <laughs> War Planets because that that the thing with the huge what do they call it the Beast Planet showing up? Yeah. That was the end of season one. There's actually another season. Really? See, well, that was the thing. It was a syndicated show, and because it was syndicated, it could show up at any given time, and and you not know about it. Oh. I- I gotta see if this is on YouTube or DVD. <laughs> I, gotta, I, wanna, I don't. I want to see how it ends. <laughs> see, because I only got to see like the first. I got to see like part of the first season, and I thought it was just just amazing. I enjoyed it thoroughly. Man, you done got me all hyped up. Want to watch some? Take me back to Saturday mornings and watch TV from like seven in the morning till about one in the afternoon. Those are the days. Yes, I, I would set my VCR and occasionally wake up. Mm-hmm. I'd. And then I play a lot of ball and watch it later. Yeah, well, see, here's here was my thing. Like during the during the '80s and early '90s, there was a lot of stuff on. So if you know, there were times where like the v, the VCR could only record so much. So other stuff I just had to watch. So oh yeah, that's true. And so there was you know a lot of controversy because there's a period of time where you know Saturday morning television, all the networks actually competed and put in work. I mean, but now they just like I said many times before, network television just gave up. So, uh, oh, but you know, I remember a lot of mainframe shows, at least in my area, they were on a Sunday, yeah. Oh, yeah, because it was sent a lot of that stuff was syndicated, so you get it like you would get it on Sunday, like in our in our neighborhood. Heavy Gear and War Planets would show up on would show up on Saturday afternoon, like around 12 and 12 30. Reboot, which sometimes would be on ABC, but if it got preempted, it wouldn't show up till like Sunday afternoon. It was really strange, especially during like if a uh, sports season like college football, college basketball, you wouldn't be able. Sometimes you'd have to watch reboot at four in the morning, or sometimes you'd have to watch it like Sunday at noon, or something. You never, you would never know when it was on because there was no, once again, no cable box with with the built-in TV guide to let you know that <laughs> that it's been preemptively switched. So, well, we've come a long way in about a you know in less than a decade. It's scary. It's real scary. <laughs> Technology oh. evolved so fast. Yes. And it was called Mech Warrior, not Battletech. Mech Warrior. That's what it was. Heavy Gear was a to me it was a spin-off of uh, the Mech Warrior multiplayer games on the computer. So, yeah, yeah that's Are you, you sure it's it's listed uh, as Heavy Gear. Yeah. It is called in the no, the cartoon oh. is called Heavy Gear, but what it was loosely based off of when it actually was a computer game before it was a it was a series. It was basically loosed off. I mean, is loosely based off of Mech Warrior. Oh, uh, okay. 
I have to I have a lot of stuff to watch on YouTube now. Oh, speaking <laughs> of mainframe, I'm not sure if they I'm not sure if they did this series, but um Starship Troopers, uh Roughnecks. I didn't I didn't watch that. But according to this, uh, no, they did not do okay. it. Because I thought they did. Because if I, when you if you ever see it, and actually it's better than all the movies. Roughnecks is actually really good because the reason why Roughnecks is so good because it actually has an actual story from beginning to end. But the animation looks like Mainframe had their hands on it, but I guess not. Rico's Roughnecks. <laughs> Everyone fights. No one quits. You ever you ever read the book? No, I never read the book. I read it like a year or two ago. It is vastly different. Even the most basic thing is like in Starship Troopers, the book, they fight, which makes more sense. They fight in uh, Halo type suits mm-hmm. and in the movie. I think in the third or second one, they do. They actually get a Halo type suit, but but it's more political in the Starship Troopers. Okay. It's how I'd rule the world. You would have to serve in my army. <laughs> no? Okay. <laughs> Alright, we're going to we gonna take it back to Transformers real quick. Alright. Okay. Pete. From Generation One, the Generation One animated series, what's your in like this in your mind, what is your favorite episode from that? G one? From G one. Is this yeah. pre or post movie? Uh this would be pre movie. Pre pre animated movie. Do parts count? Like if it was oh, yeah. yeah, you can it could just be part part whatever. What whatever you want it to be, dude. Whatever you want it to be. This is rough. I didn't I don't know. <clears throat> See, my friends, they gave me a lot of shit because they know I'm a huge Transformer fan, and I think I let them borrow my DVDs a few years ago. Oh. And they said uh the shit it doesn't hold up, like pre movie and um it's kinda it's kinda true. Oh, <laughs> Story wise. No. There oh. were a couple gems. I don't know what uh, what's yours while I try to think of one. Um mine is mine is from the um from the original from the original series. Uh the original like uh three or four parter. Uh, just called Robots in Disguise. I wanna say it was part okay. three. What you say? Sorry. Wait, you mean more than meets the eye? More than meets the eye. Thank you. More than meets the eye. You're right. Thank you. It was the last episode, and it was to the part where uh, the Decepticons are about to leave Earth, and Prime was just pissed off, and he looked at Prowl. He's like, "Prowl, give me your jetpack." And Prowl is like, "What do you need? What do you need it for?" And Optimus is like, "Now!" He takes that jetpack and tries to stop the the Decepticons, and the Decepticons shoot about the sky, and oh uh, uh, yeah, and everybody like freaks out, and Prime's like, "I told you, I'm fine." I just never saw him that pissed off before. Because Prime took a beating in that series. When he was in truck mode, he fell down a mountain, got shot out the sky, got into a big fight with Megatron, like on, like on a, like around Hoover Dam or something like that, or yeah. that, that type of area. And that's the first time you got to see the uh, laser sword and laser axe. That's the only time you saw the laser sword and laser axe. <laughs> that shit was dope. Because when you first saw that, you was like, oh! And you was hoping that the toy could do that. Yeah. But, um, it can't. No, it can't. But no, that the final episode of the original series was, was my favorite. The silly shit, and the, the shit that's dated, that stuff makes me laugh so much. Like when they staged, when the Autobots staged that uh, fake Energon area, and uh, the Decepticons show up. You turn around because like you see like all these people in lab coats, but it's actually like Transformers in lab coats. I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> I'm like, hold up. The doctors are only like five feet, six feet tall. Transformers yeah. are much taller than that. If you can't tell <laughs> that that's like Bumblebee <laughs> in a lab coat. It's like know. a pretender, man. <laughs> <laughs> that's where they got the idea from. 
Oh man, this shit is hilarious. I, I think I, I narrowed it. I narrowed it between these two. I don't know because they kind of they're kind of the same. It's like it takes place right after. You remember as I was talking earlier, the uh, the key to Victor Sigma. Yes, that that is one of my favorites, and then the one immediately after War Dawn. You remember War Dawn? Mm, you gotta you gotta get me hit back. Get me right. into that. So the I forgot why. But the aerial bots are transported back in the golden age of Cybertron. And then this is when Megatron first launches his war. And then he fucks up everything, including a guy called Orion Pax. And then they take Orion Pax to uh, Alpha Trion. And Alpha Trion rebuilds him into Optimus Prime. Ah. And Optimus Prime kicks ass. Okay, that's dope. I remember that. Yes. Oh, I got one more. The episode where um, where the Decepticons stole that uh, robot ninja, and the robot ninja came into the Autobots' arc and started fucking shit up. Oh, yeah, I remember that. Yes, that was one of my faves, too. And you never saw that robot ever again. I think they made a toy of it, at least in Japan. Yeah, it didn't come in the States. I know that for a fact, because I'd have been looking for that one. I barely had any Transformers toys when I was little. I was poor. Yeah, you know, our family didn't have too much. That was one of those things where you either got it on your birthday or Christmas. The first Transformer I had was Jazz, and it took a while before I got Jazz because I, I had to save up for some of it, and then like my mom would chip in. And then after that, I didn't have like another Transformer for like probably about seven, eight, nine months, and I got one for Christmas. And I remember I got Skids, the original Skids, not the uh, Michael Bay Skids, but the original Skids. Um, I had an uncle who was in the Marines. And he had one from overseas, and he brought it to me as a, as a uh, Christmas gift. So it was really cool. Um, you know, uh, when I was growing up, my friend, my best friend at the time, he had, like, every Transformer toy mm. and Captain Powers. And, uh, like, he had every toy. I just go over there and play with most of his toys. Well, you might as well. I mean, he had the store. <laughs> he had he the did. store. So. He did. I, I, years later, I tried to convince him to sell me his Transformers, but he wouldn't part that bastard. See, if in the, if I'd have known he had them Captain Power toys, I may have stopped by his house. Yeah. Hey, Jesse, if you're listening, uh, sell me your shit. <laughs> <laughs> I know where your grandma lives, and she keeps all the toys. Oh, wow. <laughs> crazy. <laughs> all right, man. Well, I'll tell you what. Before we wrap this up, once again, where can the people find your podcast, Vias for Vertigo? Oh, we're wrapping up already? Man, I wasn't done yet. I, I'm in the mood to talk now. <laughs> I'm in the mood to talk. You got me talking. I haven't watched the. Uh, I don't. I don't see, talk much. See, no, no. See, but now this is gonna give you time to like hop on YouTube and watch the rest of them War Planets episodes. What? Hey, did you even watch the Turtles Forever? Only part I got to watch. <laughs> Take part, that as a no. No, only part I got to watch was when uh, the turtles showed up. And they met the animated turtles, and they was like, hold on, April's about to be in danger. And yeah. like, I fell out, and she's being chased by vegetables. Yeah. I laughed so hard. Well, I heard your last episode, I, and by last episode, I mean months and months ago, mm-hmm. depending <laughs> on when this comes out, um, that uh, <laughs> the guy asked you, I forgot his name, he asked you if you watched the Red Letter Media uh, prequel reviews. Yeah, you know, he, he told me, yeah, Marcus uh, got me hip to that, and I did get to watch some of uh episode was episode one or episode two i want to say some of episode two at work man that stuff is funny yeah uh dude you gotta watch i think episode one's a slightly superior okay review it's also a better movie no i think like see because you're a writer right yes and so am i i think just watching them you learn like how he breaks it 
down and you're like, oh, maybe I will not do what Lucas did or did not do there. It, for me, like watching all the Star Wars movies, especially how Red Letter was breaking some of it down, for me, <coughs> Empire is that template for dialogue. You know what I mean? Empire is that template for dialogue. Empire is the template for story. And a lot of that had to do with the fact that the director attached to it, Erwin um, Kirshner, had, had his stuff down. So he got the most out of everybody. Oh, he he told I saw an interview with him. He's like he told Lucas to stay the hell off the set. Really? Yeah. He, he said he's it's on YouTube like a 10 15 minute interview where he goes uh he 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 didn't want to direct it but and then Lucas begged him. He was like, oh, "I'll do it. Just don't come on the set." And then he came on the set like that one time when they were filming Yoda and he was all shy and shit like, "Should I be here?" And Kirshner was like, oh, come on, George. It's all right. It's all right. You can come for this like one scene, for this one shooting day. Mm. That's it. And then uh, <clears throat> he also said that, you know how everyone, uh, well, the, he, he premiered Star Wars to like, you know, Corpola and Kirshner and all his film people. Yeah. And they, they were like, he tells a story like they all gave each other that look because Lucas was in the back and they all that look like this is shit. <laughs> the the original one. Yeah, Thank God his his ex wife edited it correctly, because they were looking at it like, "What are you doing, dude? Mm. What is this?" But yeah. no, you should you should watch you should watch the all Red Letter Media stuff. It's good. Cool. But speaking of that podcast, though, uh, where, where can people get it? V for Vertigo dot blogspot dot dot com. <laughs> I'm not granted once again because by the time this episode comes out, some of the stuff may have already happened. But um, Merry, Merry Christmas, people. <laughs> Stop that shit, man. Happy Thanksgiving. <laughs> <laughs> See you wrong. Merry no, New Year. No. no? Uh, what will you be talking about on VS for Vertigo in the upcoming uh, episodes? Um, well, I have this stack uh, of trades I bought at WonderCon that I'm using as a mic stand currently. Okay. So it's going to be everything from uh, Northlanders and Scalped and... Uh, DMZ, Jack of Fables, just whatever I feel like reading. As soon as I complete all the great series, the show is over. The show is over. The show is over. <laughs> a lot of cats don't understand that KRS-One Bridge is over stuff. Some of that may have went over their heads a second ago. but um, yeah, but You should put some in this episode, man. I'm, I'm sure. The, the Transformer soundtrack, do you have that shit? Oh, you're talking about with Stan Bush's You Got to Touch? Yeah, with the <laughs> old 80s rock. <laughs> you know I got the... You know I got you know, I got that 45. Oh, Jesus. 45. No, th- this was, check it. This was back when, when the movie came out, there was this promotion. I want to say it was like through a cereal company. And if you had X amount of cereal box tops, you could send it in to get the Stan Bush, you have the touch 45. The B side was Where'd All Yankovic's Dare to Be Stupid. Oh, they, they didn't have the original or the, the main song, the theme song? No, they didn't. Oh, uh, that's the shit. Yeah. <laughs> Put some T. I'll put some TF on music on this one for sure. Uh, but um, it was took me a, took us a while to, to do. It took me a, a while to to get to this. But no, thanks for coming though, man. Nah, man, thanks for having me. If you ever want to come on my show again, maybe we could uh, talk about the unwritten volume dos. I'll be down for that, sir. And that concludes this week's PKD Black Box. The PKD Black Box is available via iTunes, or you can go to pkdmedia.com to get our show, check out our forum, and read comics like Mercury and the Murd, XO one on the Rock Solid Steel Bots, Agents of Colt, and Luke Foster's The Gang from the Store, six days a week for free. And if you're on iTunes or our forum board, drop us a line or email us at blackbox at pkdmedia.com. Thanks again for listening. 
Until then, dream big and hustle hard.